A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Give Social, a show about helping you improve through inspiration. Each week, we discuss the things that make your heart sing through stories, interviews, and debate. Every day, normal people do amazing things in business, charity, or through self-improvement. And we're here to celebrate them. And my name's Rob. And I'm Jen. So if you're looking for authentic, down-to-earth and practical help to build a better life, then we welcome you to the show. And just to make sure you never miss an episode or one of our bonus podcasts that we might sneak in from time to time, don't forget to subscribe through your preferred podcast provider. It's easy and more importantly, it's free. Now, let's get on with today's show. On the 22nd of May 2017, an Islamic extremist suicide bomber detonated a homemade bomb as people were leaving the Manchester Arena following a concert by Ariana Grande. 23 people died, including the attacker, and more than 800 were wounded, some of them children. Several hundred more suffered psychological trauma. In March 2020, the bomber's brother, Hassan Abidi, was found guilty of 22 counts of murder in relation to the attack. The incident was the deadliest terrorist attack and the first suicide bombing in the United Kingdom since the 7th of July 2005 London bombings. One of the victims, Martin Hett, died at the age of 29. We are joined today by Martin's mum, Fegan, who we are so privileged to have speaking with us. Fegan has spearheaded the campaign for Martin's Law, named after her son, which was set to be introduced in an effort to tighten security at public venues. On September the 7th, 2020, a public inquiry started into the circumstances of the Manchester Arena bombing, the background to the attack and the emergency response. We caught up with Fegan, socially distanced, over Zoom. What Fegan had to endure, overcome and how she has moved her own life forward after losing Martin is truly inspirational. Now we understand that this is a difficult subject for so many people. But as we say at the top of the show, sometimes inspiration can come through adversity and we are here to celebrate that. And if you listen to the end of the show, we have a brilliant giveaway for Facebook followers to support Fegan and the work you are about to hear of. So stay tuned. How's, how are we sounding to you? Yeah, good. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Perfectly. Did you know that since lockdown... The term, can you hear me okay, is the most asked question. <laughs> Just a silly I, fact. I, I, can Im- I can imagine it is, actually. I can imagine it yeah. is. We get- yeah. Tell us a little bit about Fegan. Tell us about where you've come from in terms of your professional journey. I know we, we met many, many years ago now. I think it was probably around 2008, maybe. 
Um, maybe it was a couple of years after that. And we were doing our professional coaching qualification at the time, That's I think it was, in Manchester. So tell us a little bit about you and your uh, professional journey so far, Fegan. So I trained as a counsellor, um, gosh, over two decades ago, nearly 25 years ago. And over the years, I obviously gained a few more skills. I became a, a clinical supervisor. Mm but I supervised other counsellors in their work because it's all regulated. And I also then later on decided I wanted to teach the subject, so I became a lecturer in counselling. Eventually my boss retired and I took the department over. I was a manager. Uh, In the end I left because it became more management than teaching and I didn't really enjoy that. But in the meantime, I'd also acquired... um, a qualification in life coaching. So I ended up then, leaving, after leaving the college, I became a private practitioner. And I had the good fortune that I lived in a huge, big Victorian house with a basement. And we did the basement up and I had a, a, a both a, a treatment room where I saw my clients, but also a bigger room that I used as a classroom and I ran workshops from there. Um, on all sorts of topics from anger management to uh, self-esteem to all sorts of different things. And I had the odd guest speakers in as well. So that was quite a good time for me professionally. And all that came to a halt when Martin died. So I was really, really busy. I had three elements to my job, as I said. I was a therapist, I was a life coach, and I was a clinical supervisor enjoyed the variety of the three different elements and I had a full practice working full time uh, every day all day Mm. some evenings and then uh, the horrible evening everything came to a halt everything stopped so um, the day after he died as I was waiting for official confirmation that Martin had actually died I was reflecting thinking I can't do my job anymore and and the realization came from, you know, people say, why don't you do your job again? And uh, I, I honestly can't ethically justify it because in a way, I, as a therapist in particular, I need to be emotionally completely fully available for my clients without my own baggage, really, because that's why therapists occasionally engage in their own therapy to get rid of some of that baggage so they're available. However, there is baggage and there's baggage, isn't there? So so when Martin died, that was a little bit more than just the ordinary bit of normal life baggage. And I recognised that it would be unethical for me to do my job if even a fraction of my thoughts would involve thoughts like, for God's sake, you're still alive, stop moaning. And in all honesty, I can't say that I wouldn't think that. Mm. So therefore, it would be unethical for me to carry on my job. So the only course of action was to step down. And just out of interest, what led you into working with people as both a coach and a counsellor in the first place? When I was four years old, All I wanted to do is become a nurse. Um, Unfortunately, my mum and dad didn't let me, so they made me learn languages instead. But on my 30th birthday, I decided I want to be a nurse and I wanted to actually be a mental health nurse. I had to stop halfway through my training because my marriage broke up, my first marriage. 
and I didn't get back to nurse training. But since uh, sort of in that time, I came across counselling training and I decided to do that instead because that was also I was going to be a mental health nurse. And that was very similar to mental health nursing. And it really appealed to me and it was okay to train whilst the kids were at school. So it was perfect for me. And I just love working with people. You know, I really thoroughly enjoy working with, interacting with people and and supporting and helping where I can. And we'll be talking a little bit about the work you've been doing with people shortly. I'd like to speak to you about your son, Martin. Tell us a little bit about the Martin that you remember, your son, Martin. Right. So Martin was two two different elements and extremes, really. He was completely funny and over the top. He would see humour in things that would be everyday things, like he'd go on the train to Altrincham every day to work, and there would be a woman, and the poor woman, I don't know who she was, but, you know, she... <laughs> <laughs> He was irritated by her initially because she always fought to get through the door first when the train arrived. And he got so irritated. He said, um, he made a story online saying, I'm going to beat this woman. I'm going to get in before her one day. So every morning (laughs) he secretly filmed her and did a story. And he had so many people following that. So it's it's a simple thing. But he saw the funny side of it. And he had so many things in life that he that ordinary people would not even think about, he'd turn it into something hilarious, you know. And the other side to him was he had elements of depression that he periodically suffered from. So he'd he'd often come to me for that and uh, I'd sort him out somehow, not as a therapist, as a mother, you know. So he'd ring me in the middle of the night saying, Mom, I feel suicidal. Can I come around? I'm worried to be on my own at home. And I'd wait in my PJs by the gate because he'd never have ta- money for the taxi anyway. So I'd pay the taxi, make him a cup of tea. He'd, he'd lie on the settee with his head on my knees. I'd stroke his hair and let him cry. And then we'd have a cup of tea, have a chat. By the morning, we'd be giggling and laughing. And <laughs> then he'd take, you know, his bosses were quite aware of his uh, occasional mental health issues. So they'd just say, look, keep him at home, look after him for a couple of days. And I'd take him for lunch and I'd just spend time with him. And after two, three days, he was fine. So that would happen occasionally. But on the whole, I'd say 80%, 90% of the time, he was the funniest guy ever. He saw everything in a very positive light. The other thing about Martin is he was kind. He was compassionate. A week after he died, I've been told I had a, a bereavement card from a lady who worked at a local school. And she said to me in this card that her head teacher did an assembly talking about a young man who would get up nearly every day to give a blind man on the train his seat. And that was Martin. He'd have those kind elements as well. He'd always help the underdog. He had all sorts of friends who wouldn't normally fit the normal friend pattern, but he he just befriended everybody, you know. Yeah. He was kind. And so we move into the tragic events of May the 22nd, 2017. I'm sure it's very difficult for you and all those impacted. Tell us your recollection of that evening and what led up to the awful events that unfolded at the Manchester Arena. So that was an odd week because Martin had felt he, Martin had planned to go to America for two months and he'd been saving for two years and was so excited. It was meant to be the trip of a lifetime. 
And uh, on the Sunday morning, he rang me and said, Mum, can you take me to Asda to buy some cat food and cat litter so that Hannah, his flatmate, can look after the cat without any hassle? And I said, yeah, of course I will. So I picked him up and uh, he lived in a flat that was owned by us, uh, but he rented it from us sort of fairly inexpensively. And uh, so I took him to Asda and on the way back, he said to me, well, Mum, uh, after I've come back from America, I'm going to get him a, a significant promotion. So I was thinking when I come back, do you think you and Stuart would sell me the flat? I think it's about time I became a property owner. And I said, you know what, just go on your holiday and then we'll talk about it. I'm sure I can talk to Stuart about it. So, um, so he was looking forward to sort of that bit of independence in his life as well. And then we took the Catholic turn stuff up gave him a kiss and a hug and I said, see you Wednesday at 11 because I was meant to take him to the airport on the Wednesday the 24th. And that's the last time I saw him. On the Monday, I had work. I saw clients at home all day and I had a couple of really heavy clients. And, you know, I wasn't poorly that day, but I was a bit under the weather and a bit sort of my head was full of the client stuff that I listened to. So I said to my husband, I'm going to have an early night. My two youngest daughters still lived at home. One was revising for her GCSEs in her room. The other one was doing a foundation course. She was preparing some stuff for an exhibition she had to do. So they were both in their rooms busy. And I went to bed at 10 o'clock. And my husband was downstairs doing paperwork. Probably about 20 to 11, my daughter, my my 19-year-old then, came in my bedroom and I woke up because she messed with my phone and I said, what are you doing with my phone? And she said, sorry, I woke you, mum, but I'm just checking if you had a message of Martin. And I said, why would I have a message of Martin? And she said, because his friends keep texting me, they can't find him. I said, what do you, by that time I was awake, of course. So I said, what do you mean they can't find him? Very he's not at home. And she said, no, no, they've gone out for a gig and um, they got separated. And I said, how did they get separated? Uh, and she said, well, there was an incident, mum. So then I said, incidents? And she, she, was, she became really, really nervous about telling me. So she said, mum, mum, there's, there's been an explosion. She hadn't even finished the word explosion. I ran past her. I literally flew down the stairs. And my husband at that point had stood in front of the TV screen. Uh, he was about to switch off and come to bed. And I said, Martin's there and his mates can't find him. They're all out. He isn't. And he said, oh, don't worry. You know, it's a big arena. There's, there's thousands of people there. You know what he's like. He's probably left early like he always does. I said, he's not answering his phone. Uh, that worries me. And he said, he'll be out of charge. You know how chaotic he is. He'll ring you in the morning. He'll probably be quite drunk now. He'll ring you in the morning. Anyway, look, I'm, I'm off to bed. And off he went. And my daughter came down with me and the two of us sat, obviously making a cup of tea and watching the news and texting his friends back and forth. Probably about, I'd say about quarter past, 17 minutes past 11, I suddenly had the weirdest feeling. And it's just in the pit of my stomach. And I turned to Louise and said, he's dead. And she, she was mortified. And she said, mum, don't say that. And I said, look, I suddenly have this strange feeling. I can't have, I have no sense of him whatsoever. 
in fact, I remember saying it feels like he's not even on the planet anymore. There's just nothing. He's gone. At that point, one of his friends phoned. Louise passed me the phone and I said to this girl, look, um, stop looking around the hospitals. They're all busy. Because at that point, they were all going around the hospitals looking for him. And I said, look, you need to prepare yourself for the worst. It might be worst case scenario here. He could be dead. And at that point, this girl really, really cried and was a little bit upset with me, I think, for saying it. At about half past three in the morning, my husband realised I wasn't in bed and he came down and sat with us. And then they gave an emergency number on the television. We ran, registered him as missing. And then there was another message on TV saying, if you are worried, please come to the Etihad Stadium for information and support. So when my husband came down, he's a GP and he never misses work. He's very conscientious. I said to him, look, Stuart, I need to go to the Etihad Stadium. I need to know where he is. And I meant by that where his body is. That's all I wanted to know. And I said, I can't drive. I've been up all night. I haven't got the confidence to drive into town. He very calmly took his mobile phone out of his pocket and started dialing. He said, I'm cancelling my surgery this morning. You can't Mm. go down. Very, very atypical of him. I didn't query it. I was glad he came with me. Months later, when we finally had a chance to have a conversation about that evening, I said, what made you come with me? That's so not like you. And he said, as soon as you said Etihad Stadium, I had a mental image, which thankfully I hadn't at the time. I would have freaked out. But he said, I had the mental image that the whole football pitch is covered in dead bodies with his mm. white sheet. He said, and I thought you're going to be there to identify the body. I can remember the evening and, and sitting at home myself, watching it on the television. I think we both sat up at that time and, and watching it. Even sat here now listening to you. I, I I can't even start to comprehend how how worried and the, just the process of the thoughts that would have been happening in your house, in your mind at that time. And having, I suppose in many ways as well, the strength to be having the conversations with Martin's friends who were obviously worried as well, conversations with your own family. I, I did read something which I'm just very interested um, to get your views on, Fegan. Now that um, we're three years on, we we said right at the beginning of the show that we've got the the public inquiry, which is starting this month. And one of the things that you've said previously is about the attackers and, and how you feel about the attackers. I'm not going to say the names because I know you don't like to say the names and I think we're going to respect that today. Um, how do you feel about the attackers now? Funny enough, I can say the names now, and that is only since, because I go around schools talking to children, uh, since I have been, last year I've been to their school, I did eight visits there, seven or eight visits, and talked to all, every single year, eight group there at that school. And going in that building for the first time thinking, oh my God, I'm breathing the same air as they did, was Mm. strange, but weirdly healing as well. Because it, what, what it did is it transformed them from terrorists to school children. And I had the same feeling in court when I saw the brother. A couple of times we, we looked at each other and we had eye contact. I thought, gosh, a few years ago you were in school uniform in that school. Yeah, it, it's, I don't mind the names, but um, right from the word go, I actually was never angry with either of them. I didn't, at the time of the attack, I didn't even know he had a younger brother, but how I felt about the terrorist himself 
So obviously, when it first happened, uh, we didn't watch the news, we didn't read the papers, but somebody kept buying newspapers and putting them on my dining room table, found out it was my husband after. On the third day after it happened, I happened to walk past and I froze because I saw on the front page, I saw his picture and I thought, oh my God, you're so young. What on earth, you foolish, foolish boy, what on earth did you do that for? And I, I was horrified at the young age and, and so, so astounded. And um, I, as a therapist or as an ex-therapist, I've always encouraged my clients, my students, um, and I obviously adopted it myself. I've always had the opinion that if something happens, no matter what it is, step back, look at the bigger picture. And I had this big need to step back and look at the bigger picture. So from a very early time after the attack, within a couple of weeks, really, I thought, where is my responsibility in this? Why is this happening? Why is terrorism even a thing? I had so many questions in my head about terrorism, uh, but no answers because up to that point, terrorism for me was something you saw on the news that happens to other people, those little people on the news in the screen that isn't real, real life. And it happens in films, you know, that we watch and get excited about. It's not real life. Next thing, we became the news and uh, mm. that was a huge shock. Uh, however, I realized I don't know nothing about terrorism. When I, when I then took that to the young age of the guy, I thought, wow, why is this even happening? Why did that young person do that and chuck his own life away as well? And then obviously the house was full of people initially. And eventually after two, two weeks uh, and a bit, I suddenly found myself one morning on my own at home, uh, nipped across to the shop, bought the Guardian thought I'll have a cup of tea and breakfast. And there was, on the front page, was a photo of, in the middle of the page, of five men linking arms, protecting a man on the floor. And when I read, I thought, oh, what's that? It was the Finsbury Mosque attack. Yeah. So I read the article and I thought, oh my goodness, in that chaos, in that terrorizing scene there that was unfolding, in that quick moment, these five men, one of them the imam from the mosque, decided to protect that man who'd attacked them. Yeah. They at that point couldn't have even known whether there was somebody else trying to attack them. And they didn't have time to talk to each other. So instinctively, they did what humanely is the right thing to do. And that together, I took that picture in my head and combined that with a picture of the young guy who did the arena attack. And I put those two together and realized, actually, I can make a decision here how I respond to what happened to me. But that evening, my husband came home and I said, look, I'm going to ring the BBC. I, I want to publicly forgive him. That's such a big statement to make as well, isn't it? As an individual, especially in what, what I suppose is such a short space of time as well. I, I just wonder how the rest of the family are now as well. A small bit about the process they've been through because I actually saw, which I thought was amazing, is it Nikita who passed her exams only a few months after the incident as well and got 11 A-stars, was it? That's right, yeah. And she did her A-levels and got two A-stars and two A's. So, mm. <laughs> so, so Nikita, um, so the day 
after it happened, we were told that evening that he's officially dead. And we, we all came home to our house and we spent the whole evening uh, and night talking about Martin. And we all had a few uh, vodka and Diet Cokes, which was Martin's favorite drink. And Nikita was 16 at the time, but she had a couple as well. So in the daytime, before we were officially told Martin is dead, my husband said, look, I better ring school because we don't know what's happening. Anyway, school phoned us back that day and said, tell Nikita she doesn't need to worry, she doesn't need to sit any exams. Anyway, so we told her, you don't need to worry. So we were up all night. She came downstairs in her uniform and we said, what are you doing? And she said, mum, I've, I've done my revision and I'm going to sit the exams for me and for Martin. I'm going to carry on doing my exams. And she did. She went every day. We took her in every day and she, she did. And school were very good. So. Her grieving went into her education. She really focused on studying and she's done very well. She's really, really bright. She's studying maths at Nottingham University now. And Louise, my other daughter, was about to go to university and finally looked forward to be independent. And when it happened, she absolutely was in peace. She couldn't go. So she missed her entry to university and stayed living with mum and dad another year. But she coped well and she is now self-employed. She had a couple of jobs, management jobs and, and PR jobs, but she's now self-employed. Daniel is uh, focusing on producing a game surrounding his grief around the attack. So that, I don't know when that's finished, but he's, he's putting a lot of effort into that game. That's his way of processing the grief. And my other daughter has decided to have more children and so she's got another baby and she focuses on her family and career now. So they're all moving on with their lives um, and don't really want to be known as the people who lost their brother. So they're trying to have a normal life really, which is a good idea. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
I think the way that you've dealt with it, both you and all of your children as well, is nothing else but inspirational, really. And I think that's what our show is all about. And that's why we wanted to speak to you. And I think particularly how you have navigated all of this over the past three years is just phenomenal, really. So what we want to talk to you about now is the work you do with young people in schools. You've mentioned it briefly already. And the work that you do now to promote peace and kindness and tolerance in Martin's memory. Yeah, because of their young age, both both brothers, I, I felt that first year I couldn't do anything. I was like uh, initially in cloud cuckoo land, zombie land, wherever. I was grieving like mad. I was crying a lot in private. And the first year I wasn't capable of doing anything. But I did say to my husband, as soon as that first anniversary is over, I need to go and talk to young people. I felt very, very compelled because they were so young. And and I, I became aware that people are being led down a bad route through the internet. And I felt that actually, at the same time, I felt that young people, that there's a real sense of awakening when I think of young people dealing with climate change now and finally alerting us grown-ups that it's not okay what we've done for their future. So I felt that, okay, young people are the answer here. Young people are our hope for a better world. And I started going to schools and talked to them, obviously, about what happened to us as a family, but also that I I want them to, to think that I'm not just there to tell them a sad story, but actually the purpose of me going is to talk about, obviously, uh, taking extreme caution what they see online. And also, you know, when you go to schools and you ask how many of you have come across um, terrorism-related stuff online by accident, and out of 100 kids, there's usually at least 40 hands coming up, which is enormous, you know, and uh, it's quite concerning. So I talk to them about that. But most importantly, and that's the message I leave them with, I want them to know. I say to them, look, you're the future grown-ups. You're the future educators, policymakers, lawyers, solicitors, whatever. You're, you are the people who will shape your future. And you have a responsibility to make it the best future you can. You are the best hope for a peaceful world. And I said, your most important task is you're going to be future parents. So it's really important that you instill in future generations the notions of kindness, tolerance, acceptance, togetherness, unity. And I always say you need to not fear difference. You need to embrace it as enrichment to your own lives. Those are really important messages. And and that is something which hasn't gone unnoticed, the fantastic work that you do. You were recently awarded Outstanding Contribution Award uh, for the Counter-Terrorism Awards this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's probably to do with Martin's Law. I'm, I'm trying to um, get the government to um, introduce Martin's Law. It's a, piece of, a simple piece of legislation. Uh, I know the newspapers have bigged it up to something that's quite detrimental because they put headlines in like, Arena Victim's Mother Wants Airport-Style Security, and the backlash of those headlines was, that I got criticised on Twitter heavily for. You're going to make people bankrupt. You're going to make uh, cause more more risks by having queues outside. It's ridiculous. We're going to turn into a police state. All these ridiculous arguments. 
But Martin's law isn't like that at all. Martin's law is, it's got five simple components. And first one is that I want basically any organization that has lots of customers in, be that a cafe, restaurant, whatever, that that, that a high percentage of their staff, as part of their induction, do the 45-minute free-of-charge ACT e-learning package. It's very simple and it benefits their own life anyway. Number two is that they go around the building and do a risk assessment in terms of terrorism Mm. and identify areas of vulnerability. Number three is that they deal with those vulnerabilities they identify. And that can be a simple thing as putting a new light in the backyard or that they change the lock to make it easier to get in and out in case of emergency. Or they identify maybe a safe room where if somebody comes through the front row with a machete, front row with a machete, that they actually have a safe space where they can take customers and staff. Simple measures like that. Number four is similar to any organization having to have a health and safety plan and a fire evacuation plan that they actually have a terrorism action plan in place. And the last one is really for bigger venues only, for instance, a stadium, a big sporting event or big music event that they actually work, those events, those venues work with the local authority. So it could be as simple as, again, that the local authority at times of matches or concerts, at the beginning and at the end of it, they may put extra buses on, extra trains on, extra transport. They may uh, change the lighting times of traffic lights to make the flow easier, to get people away out of the area as quickly as possible. And that's all Martin's Law is really. You know, that's absolutely Fantastic. And the ambition, because we, we've all been to concerts, we've all been to big events. And even those people who may say that they think something might be coming more of a police state if we have people searched or if there's extra security. I know from going to ones myself that you're talking at the big events, especially 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people all in one place. And I think most definitely there's an opportunity there to be able to be more aware and to build awareness with those who are running or working at the stadiums or at the venues on increasing their own awareness of the vulnerabilities, as you say, to the potential of something like this, hopefully never happening again. The problem is that uh, we need to catch up with terrorism because terrorism has changed. They don't announce it anymore. And and obviously there's been a call by a terrorist who publicly said that actually use any method to kill people, you know, use knives, use vehicles, use a stone, kill the people with any means. And of course, that has been a big encouragement for people to just run cars into buildings, etc. So the face of terrorism has changed. So we need to catch up with that really. And that's what Martin's Law is about. And on on top of all of that, not that you weren't doing enough anyway, but you've also made the powerful decision to further your own studies in counterterrorism. Have you completed that qualification now? Is it something you're still working through? Um, I'm halfway through it. I'm about to start my second year this year. And again, the reason why I decided to study at the grand old age of 59 and a half, I'm older than my tutors, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> so I decided to study uh, terrorism because I really had so many questions about it because I've never really got my head around. It was never relevant to me, but I needed to understand uh, and this may sound really controversial. Every time I say it, people wince and, and look shocked, but I, I'm going to say it. I needed to know whether I have Martin's blood on my hands 
And that seems an outrageous thing to say. And that people say, don't feel guilty. It's not your fault. Well, is it not? I'm not so sure if it isn't. Because, you know, I feel that terrorism is something created by society. We've created these monsters. Uh, and, and the course I attended so far, everything I learned backs that up. <laughs> you know, um, it, it just yeah. does. And so is it a two-year course that you're doing? It is, yeah. So I'm doing my dissertation this year. <laughs> I, from somebody who has just finished his dissertation, I, um, I, I, I wish you luck most definitely. <laughs> and so finally, one of the things I want to talk to you about is the Peace Bears and your book. And Jenna's just holding one up on the screen now. These, these are absolutely a fantastic, fantastic initiative that you have. And, and this is something that you've been doing for many years now, something that you were doing before the events in Manchester, before Martin's death. And we thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to chat about these bears, just to describe them to people who haven't seen them, uh, who are listening. These are fantastic handmade bears. And let's be honest, Vegan, they are literally world famous, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they've been all over the world. Yeah, they, yeah. they are literally born off the planet. Um, yeah, I made, I started making them a long time ago, but that was for my own well-being initially because I had a, a very rare condition about five years ago um, that I didn't recognize as a medical emergency. I thought I had water in my ear when, when it was actually a medical emergency. It's an illness. It's a condition that affects one in 20,000 people. And hey, I was the lucky one. <laughs> Oh. the one, I should say. So I didn't recognize it and I should have been on steroids within 48 hours and I didn't start my treatment till a, a month later. And by then it was too late. So I lost 60% of my hearing on my left ear. But of course, my ears as a therapist are my working tools. So I got really upset about it and down about it. And then I thought, well, you're feeling a bit depressed, but you know, you're telling your clients all the time when they're depressed get creative. It's good for the soul. It turns, you know, it helps that side of the brain and, and gives the other side of the brain a rest. Get creative. It's really, really good. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get creative. So I did a few hearts. I sold a few hearts. And then I got a bit bored with the same thing. And I've started to knit these bears. But I knitted and knitted and knitted, realizing how good it is for me, how healthy it is for me. But I had so many and one day I said to Martin, because I knew he would be the only one who wouldn't ridicule me, So because I always confided in him first. So I said to him, do you know, Martin, uh, don't laugh, but I really want to do a therapeutic storybook for adults. Uh, I want to do a therapy book, but not a self-help book, but not like the usual ones. I wanted a mm. bit tongue-in-cheek, but serious. So he said, great idea, Mum, and I can do all your PR for you. So... So Daniel helped me with the computer, the putting it together digitally. And Martin helped me with the PR and the layout a bit. And uh, yeah, and the book came together. So um, so 16 stories of bears with all sorts of issues from porn addiction to abandonment issues, um, to coming out as gay, to anxiety and and. I have one little bear called George sitting on my lawn with huge big sunglasses. He had um, um, seasonal affective disorder. So these are all issues that I encountered in my practice as a therapist. And a lot of them are based on true stories from 
clients spanning over 20 years, but I mixed mm. everything up. So it's not just ever one client. Yeah. And a lot of the stories are about my family. Fantastic. And so we've got the book, which is all these stories and, and ways to help people through, hopefully inspire them through whatever it is that they may be going through at the time. And then the, the bears themselves, you can purchase the bear. We bought two of them. Um, in the run up to this show going out, we're going to actually give away one of the bears. <laughs> but Jenna is insistent that we're keeping Desmond. Desmond. She, she loves Desmond. So we're, we're keeping Desmond. But each bear comes with its own handwritten note, doesn't it? And tell us a little bit about what makes each of these bears unique when they purchase one of these bears. So it doesn't feel right to just stuff them in a bag and post them um, because these bears, there's a lot of love goes into making those bears. And every time I make a bear, I once it's finished, I say to my husband, there you are. Say hello, <laughs> you know, to me, they're little beings. Yeah. And, and then they sit on my settee. I've got a little settee in the lounge and they sit on the back of the settee. And I never sell too many because I always like, they comfort me seeing them sitting in a row. And I've even got a couple in the in the window in my lounge so that kids see them when they walk past. And um, they're, they're really important to me. Um, and... I, I always sit as I make them thinking, okay, what could you be called? I always look for interesting names. I like old-fashioned names. And depending on the name, I then just come out with a story. And when I, you know, on Depop, but when I actually parcel them up, I continue the story a little bit and send them off. <laughs> and we'll make sure that there is a link in, the, in this episode and on the website to the page where people can um, buy these bears. I, but you've probably got one of your bears is probably more famous than most, isn't he? Is it Jordan? Yes, Jordan Bear. He's in Brussels at the moment. So he's on his way back home. And then end of this month, he's off on holiday with somebody, some random person who said she'll <laughs> take him travelling. Um, so Jordan Bear um, was one of my bears who I, I tend to take them and photograph them in restaurants and gardens and parks and whatever. And I took this one bear with me uh, to London um, two months after Martin died um, because Attitude magazine, who he wrote for freelance quite often, um, they, they contacted us. They wanted us to go to an award ceremony. They, gave, they give out 10 awards every year and they wanted to give one to us. In, on behalf of Martin. So they said, come and pick it up. So we went and I thought, great, I'll sit him on the table at, at the award ceremony. When we got there, I hadn't realised that actually the event was star-studded, loads of celebrities and <laughs> uber posh. And I was too embarrassed to take the bear out <laughs> of my bag. <laughs> so on the way home, however, I thought, I can leave him on the train and see what happens. So I went and got a paper food bag from the guy, put the bear in the bag and wrote on the bag, my name is Jordan Bear. I was knitted by Martin Head's mum. Martin was one of the 22 who died at the arena. His mum wants to see how far I can travel. Please don't keep me more than a few days. And to my surprise, that bear has been all over the world. <laughs> Sorry. So somebody took him from the train to a hotel in Manchester, passed him on to a lady from Wales. She took him to Wales. She then had a holiday in Mexico, passed him on to an American lady who passed him on to another American lady. And that before I knew it, he traveled all over North America. 
and then ended up in Dublin and then ended up in Africa and then ended up in China and went skiing in the ski in the French Alps and went to Portugal, to Ibiza. There isn't a place he hasn't been yet. Actually, Australia is one that he hasn't been to. And he has actually had a couple of um, celebrity friends who've had him all over the world with them as well. I know particularly Philip Schofield, Holly Willoughby, uh, Alfie Bow, Michael Ball. Well, he's been on stage with Alfie Bow and uh, uh, Michael Ball, but uh, I'm particularly, um, I have a bone to pick with Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby because they've been very naughty. They introduced him to Alfie oh. <laughs> in Portugal. <laughs> so, yeah, I had a way over time with him. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I love that you've accompanied Jordan's journey. He's, he's got a Facebook page, hasn't he? And the hashtag Be More Martin, which is fabulous. I, I love, absolutely love that. I think it's it's brilliant. It's just such a, and I think the way that you've described Martin so far, I think he'd just find that fantastic, wouldn't he? I think he'd just love that this had happened and it had been taken up and people have embraced it and embraced what you're trying to achieve. And I just think it's, it's brilliant. Love it to bits. One of the last things we want to chat to you about now is we always ask our guests who come on the show if they have an inspirational charity or a cause that means something mean something to them and when we asked you that question you came to us and mentioned the official Megan Hurley Foundation so do you want to just tell us a little bit about that please? So um, obviously I don't uh, I do sell the bears but I don't really feel comfortable keeping the money so I'm trying to always give it away but Mm -hmm. actually I try also to raise funds for um, some of the other families who have Mm. been uh, tragically bereaved in the um, in the uh, arena attacks. So Megan Hurley was a 15-year-old young, beautiful young lady who sadly passed away there as well. And her mum and dad have set up a foundation. You see, we, we never set up a foundation or a charity. So um, mm. so I don't raise funds for my own charity because I haven't got one, but I'd like to support the others. So, um, yeah, they've set up a foundation and, and their foundation, because they, they both, both parents used to run a, a sandwich shop and their own business. And after um, she died, they had to sadly give that business up. And um, they are now raising funds for people who are similar in their situation, who had to give up work for this, that or the other reason. And um, I think it's a really valuable charity and I want to support yeah. them. Brilliant. No, that's fantastic. Thank you, Fegan. I just want to say on behalf of myself and Jenna and everybody who will be listening, we really, really appreciate the time that you've spent with us today, not just to talk about Martin, but to talk about the work that you do, the absolutely fantastic work in schools, in communities. Uh, rightly so, you are recognised for, for that work uh, and we think it's brilliant. Please, please keep making the bears. We will do anything that we can to to help those bears travel the world as much as possible with as many people as, as they can. And just wanted to finally say, I hope the public inquiry finds the answers and the responses that uh, you and the other 22 families are looking for out of all of this thank you yeah they're not looking forward to it but it's gonna have to be done so uh, yeah thank you ever so much now if you go onto our facebook page we are giving away one of the peace bears we've been talking to Fegan about today and we're giving one away to one of our followers on facebook so head over to give social and find out more 
So it's time for us to finish for today, but we will be back next week with another episode and we can't wait for you to join. But before then, why not join our Facebook group, Give Social, or head over onto our website, givesocial.co.uk. We've got some special things lined up for subscribers and Facebook followers. We've got giveaways, guides, and free tips, so don't miss out. See you all next week for more Give Social. Bye-bye for now.